0: Could you please open your Bible to uh, Revelation chapter 10? And I will open in a word of prayer. Father, thank you uh, for this night you've given to us. Thank you now that we can spend uh, some time uh, considering uh, your word. Uh, I do pray uh, that you would help me uh, as the preacher. Uh, May I know uh, the filling and the empowering of the Spirit. I pray that uh, you would grant to us uh, the gift of illumination. Help us to understand uh, what's written uh, before us. Please give us eyes to see. Give us ears to hear. Help us to have uh, soft and receptive hearts that's willing uh, to receive uh, the message you have for us. And please grant to us uh, the grace that we so desperately need uh, to apply uh, the message you have for us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now as you're reading through uh, the Bible, have you ever come to a passage of scripture and you have lots of questions? Uh, You read through it and you're like, I'm I'm not entirely sure uh, what that means. I'm not sure how it fits. And it feels like the more you think about it, the more questions you have. Has that uh, ever happened to you? Now this happened to me as I began to read Revelation chapter 10 uh, on Monday. I had lots of questions. Who is this mighty angel? What's this little book? Why wasn't John able to write this down? What's the mystery of God? What's the go with eating the little scroll? Why did it make his belly bitter? Okay, what well, what does all of this mean and how does it fit? Now, thankfully, with some study and with some help from the Lord, it now appears clearer to me, and I trust that at the end of the sermon you too will possess uh, some clarity. Now the unifying theme that I would like uh, to use to tie this chapter together as we pull apart the particular pieces of the text is the thought of how we should think, feel, and respond toward all things eschatology, eschatology being the study of of end times. So how we should think, feel, and respond toward all things eschatology. Now when it comes to end times, there's a broad spectrum of interest. Uh, It's the favorite topic of the Bible for many people, and they become engrossed by things to come. And then there's another extreme that has very little interest in future things. Then there are others who doubt the legitimacy of what's coming. That okay, they would regard revelation as mythological, and then others within our society would be absolutely appalled. Surely God won't do this. Okay, it's monstrous. A God who is loving couldn't be responsible for worldwide death and destruction. And then there's others who believe it will happen. But they're quite unmoved by it all in the here and now. So there's a smorgasbord of reactions when it comes to discussing end times. And the text before us has some things to teach us which will help us to think, feel and respond in a balanced way toward things to come. Revelation chapter 10 actually forms an interlude. It's like you're at a performance at the opera house and halfway through the show, there's a break. Okay, so that's how this chapter functions. This chapter commences an interlude between the sixth and the seventh trumpet judgments. And it's actually quite a lengthy interlude. It commences at verse one of chapter 10 and it goes through to verse 14 of chapter 11. And it's interesting that there was also a lengthy interlude between the sixth and seventh Seal judgments. That was Revelation chapter 7. But there's no lengthy interlude between the sixth and seventh bowl of vile judgments in Revelation 16, because at that point it's done. Now, this particular interlude in Revelation chapter 10, it commences with a new vision. Okay, notice verse 1. It says, And I saw. This phrase throughout Revelation identifies the beginning of a new vision. So what I'd like to do is unpack this interlude vision and see what it contributes to the overall narrative and determine how it can help you and I to think, feel, and respond in a balanced way toward things to come. This vision breaks up into three parts. The the angel's appearance, verses 1 to 4. The angel's affirmation, verses 5 to 7. And the Apostles' Assignment, verses 8 to 11. Okay, so firstly, let's consider the angel's appearance. <clears throat> you know, imagine what it must have been like for John to experience these astonishing visions. Okay, try, try and put yourself in his shoes. Okay, remembering these are not hallucinations, but rather revelation from the Lord. And there have been very few... Who have experienced this throughout history and and as john saw these things there must have been a broad spectrum of emotions from from pure amazement from pure astonishment as he sees the throne of god to crippling fear when he sees the judgment of god and everything in between the vision recorded in this chapter reveals a mighty angel and this mighty angel takes center stage Angels are mentioned 60 times in the book of Revelation, occupying more than a third of the New Testament usage. But despite angels being mentioned frequently, one is only described as a mighty angel or a strong angel three times in this book. Chapter 5 and verse 2, here in our text, and then chapter 18, verse 21. And this particular description, a mighty angel or a strong angel seems to emphasize the strength and power of this being and also its key role in implementing god's plans and purposes and this also distinguishes it from the angels responsible for executing the trumpet judgments which we saw in the previous two chapters now i want you to notice the description of this mighty angel and my man he is spectacular so, so let's consider his description Okay, we're told that he come down from heaven. So this vision seems to be received on earth. And we're told that this angel he is clothed with a cloud. So, so try and visualize that. Okay, he's, he's wrapped by a cloud, and this symbolizes his power, his majesty, and his glory. But primarily it emphasizes his function. Clouds in the New Testament are often associated with judgment. Okay, so this glorious being is an angel or an agent rather of judgment. okay So he's wrapped in this cloud. He also has a rainbow upon his head. okay but perhaps it's like a, a halo. And similar imagery was used to describe the throne of God previously in revelation. but, but here it's not one color, but it's a multicolored. Rainbow again. Try try and picture that. It's it's sparkling. It's dazzling. It's a spectacular sight. Okay, and, and the rainbow when we trace it through the Bible, okay, we know that it represents God's mercy even in the face of judgment. Okay, that this is the meaning that was attached to the rainbow after Noah's flood. So, so here that this glorious rainbow around the head of this mighty angel it reassures God's people of His mercy. During the coming judgment, okay so do you have an image in your mind? Okay we've got a mighty angel clothed in clouds, this majestic rainbow gloriously glistening around his head. Then the next detail in verse one says, "And his head and his face was as it were, the sun. And I think this is meant to take our minds back to the description of Jesus in the first chapter. Okay that there it says about Jesus his countenance was as the sun shineth okay so so this described the the, the spectacular and dazzling glory of jesus it's this transcendent light a glorious glow and this angel possessed something similar what wasn't the same but but something similar and that speaks of his majesty and of his glory it was brilliantly radiant. And this was because he had been in the presence of the Lord. Okay, so we could think of this angel like Moses in the Old Testament. Remember, Moses was glowing. Okay, but this is even more spectacular. And then there's another detail added to this portrait in verse 1. It says his feet as pillars of fire. Okay, so so we have these columns of fire. Again, this is astonishing imagery. Fire usually speaks of judgment throughout Revelation. So feet of fire seems to convey his unbending holiness in stamping judgment upon the earth. Perhaps this imagery may also be intended to bring to mind the pillars of fire that led Israel through the wilderness. So so there could be an element of comfort here, of course, only for believers. But we need to understand that judgment is the primary function of this majestic being. And notice what John saw and described in verse 2. He says, he set his right foot upon the sea and his left foot on the earth. And you'll notice that this phrase is repeated in a very similar way in verses 5 and verse 8. And primarily, this description indicates complete authority over the entire earthly situation. So on both land and water, he takes possession of both. And he asserts the divine right and determination to execute judgment against the world. So, this is an astonishing and majestic being. I, I trust you've got some kind of image painted in your mind. Okay, this being is brilliant, he is spectacular. And with that image in mind, it leads to a question who is this mighty angel? Now, some view this mighty angel. As Jesus but this cannot be true for for several reasons okay the Greek word translated another is allos okay, and that means another of the same kind and this is referring back to chapter 5 which is the last mention of the strong almighty angel and that particular angel definitely isn't Jesus and hence if this is Jesus in Revelation 10 a different Greek word would be used It'd be heteros which means another of a different kind. So, so hence, the, the Greek phraseology demands that this is not Jesus. Okay, likewise, Jesus is never called an angel in Revelation. And whenever Jesus appears in Revelation, John gives him an unmistakable title. Okay, King of kings, Lord of lords. And that's missing here. Okay, John is never ambiguous about Jesus in this letter. And there's also an oath that this angel makes in verses 5 and 6, which we'll get to later. This particular oath couldn't come from the mouth of Jesus. And also, this angel has come down from heaven. So if this is Jesus, it adds an earthly appearance during the tribulation period that isn't found anywhere else in Scripture. So this is not Jesus. That's an interpretive error. Now, others identify him with the angel Michael, who we meet in Revelation chapter 12, and that could be possible. But it seems best to identify this angel as similar, but distinct from the angel in Revelation 5, 2. Okay, the only other strong angel mentioned thus far in this book. I think that's the closest we can get to identifying him with the information that's given. So with the description in mind, we're told one more interesting detail in verse 2. Notice it says, in his hand, he had a little book and it was open. Okay, opens in the perfect tense. The idea being, having been opened, it would remain open. Okay, It would not be closed. And there's some debate about the contents of this little book. Okay, The, the particular Greek word used here, it's only found in Revelation chapter 10. And some identify it with the unrolled scroll in Revelation chapter 5. You remember that was the title deed of the earth. But I don't believe this unique Greek word would be used if that was the case. Okay, if he's intending us to identify it with the book in Revelation 5, why not use the same Greek word? Okay, well, why use a new term? Now, others believe it refers to the judgment that's still to come. Okay, that's revealed in the second half of the book of Revelation. And, and again, that doesn't seem to make sense because if you think there's nine chapters revealed so far, there's 22 chapters in Revelation, so it's not really a little book because it's more content that's revealed in the next part of the book. So this little book, it contains something about judgment. Perhaps it's written authority for this angel to fulfill mission i think it's related and connected to the seven sealed document but it's distinct and the fact that this open book won't be closed what that tells us is that judgment is sure and certain now it seems that the content of this little book was pronounced by this mighty angel okay john in verse 3 he describes the cry he refers to it as a loud voice mighty powerful it's an intense cry he spoke with authority and it's described like a lion when he roars volume power this demands attention and it stresses the importance of what's declared and as this mighty angel roared like a lion that the seven thunders uttered their voice a seven is symbolic of perfection thunders symbolic of judgment some speculate that this is the voice of god that could be true but whatever it may sorry whoever it may be that they pronounce further revelation of god's judgment that was going to be unleashed and as as they're talking as john is witnessing this who gets out his pen and paper gets out his macbook he's going to document what he's hearing okay that that makes sense okay this is new to me i'm going to start writing and then the most unusual thing happened. There was a voice from heaven, likely God the Father or Jesus Christ. And they told John that he was not to write down what the seven thunders spoke. It was not to be revealed to others. And these are the only words in Revelation that are that sealed up. And obviously it's pointless for you and I to speculate about the content. Okay? It was for John's eyes only, not for ours. Okay, this is for John. This is for no one else. That This particular revelation would obviously help him in his unique role. But God in his infinite wisdom has withheld it from everyone else. And this teaches us something very important when it comes to end times, which should govern how we think, feel, react, and interact with this topic so often when it comes to end times people get very consumed with the minute details and a lot of people speak with absolute authority that that the symbolism definitely means this or it definitely represents that nation it's definitely going to happen on this date or that date and so forth okay and what ends up happening we act as though we have all the information but our text tells us that the written content that we possess is not everything. More was revealed to John and then no doubt there would have been even more that the Lord didn't reveal even to John. Okay God has revealed much but there are secrets which God has not seen fit to reveal and hence we should not proceed as though all has been revealed. So, So when we talk about end times, we need to be very careful that we're not more dogmatic and certain than the Bible allows. Okay, how can we be more certain than the Bible? How can we speak authoritatively when the Bible doesn't? Okay, this is a warning for us, because many who understand prophecy the way that we do through a premillennial lens are often far too dogmatic about things that you just can't be. Okay, some things we can be certain that they are the things that the Bible is certain about but there's much we're not told and hence when it comes to end times we we need to be careful to remember that not everything has been revealed and we need to avoid getting caught up with the things that the Bible doesn't speak clearly about okay we need to avoid setting dates We, we need to avoid drawing parallels and conclusions that the Bible doesn't Okay, we can't say, thus saith the Lord, when the Lord hasn't said it. So we would do well to avoid needless speculation when it comes to end times. Again, we need to be very careful when we see something playing out in the news that we say, this is definitely that, okay, if the Bible doesn't say that. Okay, we need to be very careful uh, with some speculation. So this is the lesson from the angel's appearance. Secondly, let's consider the angel's affirmation in verses 5 to 7. Okay, throughout the Bible, oaths would often be made to show one's seriousness or to verify the veracity of their claim. And often an oath would be made in God's name. And here this mighty angel makes a solemn oath. In verse five he's again referred to as the angel which i saw stand upon the sea and upon the earth so this confirms to us that it's the same angel just described and in this particular part of the vision the angel lifts up his hands toward heaven and makes an oath and what he's doing here he he is appealing to one higher than himself and this is why this angel can't be jesus in my opinion okay He appeals to God. And I want you to notice the description in verse six. Okay, he swears by or he makes an oath by him that liveth forever and ever. Okay, so what does this teach us about God? Well, God is alive, God is eternal, He has always existed, He does exist. And he will continue to exist. He has no beginning. He has no end. He is self-existent. He doesn't depend on anyone else or anything else for his existence. Okay, he is also the creator. It's interesting, this mighty angel held to the creationist position. God made the heavens, the earth, the seas, and everything that's within. Okay, that phrase is repeated a number of times in verse six. Okay, everything owes its existence to God. And since he's the creator, he is the ultimate authority, okay, that that there's no one greater, that, that there is no one more supreme who this angel could appeal to in order to verify what he was about to say was the truth and that it would come to pass. Now, having made this oath in God's name, surely, John must have been sitting on the edge of his chair. Okay, try and picture it. He's this angel. He's got his arms lifted up to heaven. He makes this theologically rich declaration that forms the basis of this oath. And surely John is waiting in anticipation, wondering what is going to be included in this oath. What's the content? Well, this is revealed in the final phrase of verse 6 and into verse 7. It says that there should be time no longer But in the days of the voice of the seventh angel, when he shall begin to sound, the mystery of God should be finished, as he hath declared to his servants the prophets. So this mighty angel declares, through this solemn oath, that the judgment will not stop. God is not going to change his mind halfway through. It's all set in motion. And the end is fastly approaching. There's no turning back. It's not like the Lord's going to unleash the the seal judgments and then the trumpet judgments and go, no, I I think that's enough. I've I've changed my mind. Not at all. And the mention of time here doesn't mean that time itself will cease, but rather time had run out. Okay, There would be no further delay. The end is now at hand. And, And this particular declaration that there should be time no longer it actually seems to be an answer to the question posed by the martyrs back in Revelation 6.10. Not sure if you remember that, but they asked the question, how long, O Lord? Okay, and this is an affirmation that the Lord hasn't forgotten. He will punish wickedness. His judgment will be completed. And verse 7 gives us more information. Okay, the angel declares that the seventh trumpet Okay, and this will unleash the seven bold or vile judgments. It's about to be unleashed. Okay, the, the time of God's patience has ended. His final acts of judgment, which culminates in the return of the king of kings. It's about to be unleashed and nothing can thwart it. And the mighty angel, he swears on God's name. This will happen. Nothing is more certain the angel says in verse 7 that the mystery of god should be finished as he hath declared to his servants the prophets now the question is what what is the mystery okay what is this talking about okay when we read of mysteries in the bible it's something no one could know unless it was revealed to them okay so mystery is something that god hadn't revealed in detail in the past but he has now made it known Okay, throughout the New Testament, we read of the mystery of the incarnation, the mystery of the church, the mystery of Christ in the believer. And here (coughs) we have another mystery. Okay, the mystery of God in Revelation 10 refers to hidden truth concerning God's future program that's about to be divinely revealed to John. Okay, so so it's all the details unfolded in the coming chapters. It's God ushering in his kingdom on earth okay this is the culmination first the millennial kingdom and ultimately the eternal kingdom okay so, so this mystery is the culmination of, of, of all of God's plans okay the, the, the judgment that's still to come then the millennial kingdom and then the eternal kingdom and, and God's whole plan they are certain they are sure it will be done it will be finished and again, imagine how comforting this will be for those believers enduring the tribulation. Okay, remember, during the tribulation, many will be saved. It will be a horrible time. They'll have the book of Revelation. Okay, they'll be able to read this. And what a great comfort for them. But, but for those who don't know Jesus Christ as Savior, those hardened in their unbelief, both then and now, what a terrifying truth. God's judgment won't stop he won't change his mind it will be completed it's not as though you know you'll be in hell for a couple of years and god will say well hey i might change my mind and bring them to heaven anyway okay that's the announcement from this angel everything in the book of revelation is certain and this is to govern how we think feel and respond toward the end times they are certain they are set in stone this is both good news and bad news. It's good news because it means firstly that God will right all wrongs. God will deal with sin. Justice will be served, okay, both earthly judgment and eternal judgment. No sin will remain undealt with. And the judgment in the tribulation period which we've been studying, it reveals that God is very serious about dealing with sin. And that's good news because it means justice will be served. God will right wrongs. Things that are unjust will be made right, And we all crave justice because we're made in the image and likeness of God. But furthermore, for those of us who are Christians, the fact that the mystery of God will be finished, that the fact that it's certain, my friend, that's the foundation of our hope. Did you see that? We can be confident that that Jesus will rule and reign on this earth. We will be with him. We can be absolutely certain of the eternal state. It's not mythical. It's not something that's just invented for for, for weak people to help them through this life. It's certain. And that's something that we can anchor to in the difficulties and challenges of life. My friend, we have great things in store for us. We, We have a most blessed hope. And it's certain. It's guaranteed. And I trust that encourages you. I trust that uplifts you. Okay, that that should be one effect of eschatology on us. But it's vital that you understand that if you're not a Christian, so if you've never acknowledged that you're a sinner, and that you've sinned against God, you've offended Him, you've rebelled, if that's never been acknowledged and if you have never placed your faith or your absolute confidence in Jesus Christ believing that he is God and that he died, was buried and rose again for your sin and that he's the only way to be saved, then understand judgment is coming your way. You can dismiss it. You can ignore it all that you want, but that doesn't change the fact that it's going to happen. You know, I can dismiss and deny the reality of anything. I can say, well, hey, gravity is not true. But just because I say that doesn't mean it's true. So please understand that what's recorded in the book of Revelation, it will happen. And this mighty angel and others will be God's divine instruments of judgment. Sin will be dealt with, both in the tribulation period and in hell. This is all real. It's not just some scare tactic, it's reality. And hence, I implore you, I plead with you, come to Christ. Because on the cross, he was judged. He was punished in our place. And if we embrace him as our savior, we will be spared from the judgment to come. My friend, this is the only way. The angelic announcer makes it very clear that these things will unfold. God will judge sin. The question is, will you be judged or will Jesus be judged in your place? That's the question you're faced with from this angelic announcement. And thirdly, we're going to consider the apostles' assignment in verses 8 to 11. The apostles' assignment. So, having met this astonishing angel, and hearing this amazing announcement we we almost expect for the chapter to to come to a close seems like to to make sense to conclude with a declaration that the ministry of god should be finished but but just when we think the chapter is closed there's a voice from heaven verse 8 and this is likely god speaking and he gives john an unexpected instruction he was to go and take this little book from the hands of the mighty angel. Now think about that. That's a bit of a terrifying instruction. Go to this mighty angel and take the book from him. And we, we know it's the same angel because again in verse 8, he's identified as the one which standeth upon the sea and upon the earth. Okay, but this is commanded by the Lord and credit to John. He obeyed and he confronted this mighty angel, surely slightly frightened. And verse 9, he asks for the little book. And the mighty angel obliges, and, and then things get a, a little strange. Okay, that there was a message for John from this mighty angel. Okay, that the mighty angel tells John that he's to take this open book and he's to eat it. Now that's a little unexpected. I don't think John would have been anticipating this, but he's not the first person in the Bible to do this if he follows this instruction. Both Ezekiel and Jeremiah had done this previously. But what's, but what's the go with the eating of the book? It's not something that we come across often. How are we to understand it? Okay, well eating the book suggests feeding on God's word. Okay? It's receiving God's word into the innermost part. It symbolizes absorbing and assimilating God's word. One writer said this, The Greek word is a Hebrew idiom for receiving knowledge, similar to the English use of digest for considering and meditating on what has been learned. So John needed to consume the contents. He needed to take them into his innermost being, which would then enable him to proclaim them with confidence and conviction. But what's even more strange is that this mighty angel adds a very intriguing detail he says that the contents of the book when consumed it will be sweet as honey when it's first tasted so so it's something sweet it's something amazing melts in your mouth but once you eat it your belly will be bitter okay so this was the experience of the angel. Now, what would John experience? Okay, this is recorded in verse 10. Okay, he takes the little book out of the angel's hand. He ate it. And sure enough, just like the angel had experienced, it was initially sweet as honey, but it made John's belly bitter. Okay, so so, so what are we to make of this point? Well, one writer offers this explanation. He said, John found it sweet Because like all believers, he wanted the Lord to act in judgment, to take back the earth that is rightfully his, and be exalted, honored, and glorified as he deserved. But the realization of the terrible doom awaiting unbelievers turned that initial sweet taste into bitterness. And I think that's a great explanation. And again, try and imagine that you're John at this time. You have this sweet taste in your mouth. And then there's bitterness in your belly no doubt it would be quite a puzzling experience and then at this time John receives a commission and this is not the first commission you'll notice it says thou must prophesy again so we could call this a a recommission and he's given an assignment that he must reveal these future things to everyone that, that was the mission. Notice the language in verse 12. Many people, nations, tongues, and kings. This is all inclusive. Everyone needs to know. Okay, this is the assignment entrusted to him and he fulfilled it because we have it written down in front of us. We, we have the book of Revelation. And no doubt if John had any opportunities, he would have shared it verbally with others as well. And this leads us into the final way that we should act and react when it comes to, end times okay well we should experience both sweetness and bitterness okay as we think about what's coming as we think about the the, the earthly kingdom that the heavenly kingdom as we think about the rapture as we think about being with jesus forever man that's sweet to the tongue that there's nothing sweeter that should thrill us that should excite us So, so we have this sweetness there's also a bitterness. We we ought to be saddened, We, we ought to be moved, we ought to be touched by the reality that many people are going to be judged. So many people are going to perish and my friend, that should stir us. As Christians, that should make us feel uncomfortable. Okay, when we study and discuss end times, it should make us feel a little bit uncomfortable. Okay, it should spur us on to share the gospel because so many people around us are going to face the tribulation if the Lord returns or worse. Okay, and my friend, how can that not stir us up? Okay, we shouldn't be completely comfortable and content when we think about things to come. If we think about the tribulation period and we're completely unmoved, something's up there. And here's the thing. John had this sweetness and this bitterness. And the task entrusted to him was to share it with everybody. And you and I, we have a very similar mission. Okay, we haven't and we won't receive visions and revelation from God. Okay, you're not going to go home tonight and see some mighty angel. But we have been entrusted with the Great Commission. And it's our job to share the gospel with everybody. And my friend, for us to do this, we, we need to eat the gospel. Okay, we need to consume it. We need to internalize it. And we need to share it. And again, it is both good and bad news we should taste the sweetness of the gospel but also the bitterness of the gospel because we know what happens if people reject it okay so understand that, that there is this tension between sweetness and bitterness but together they ought to motivate us to be faithful and sharing the gospel my friend this is our task And this ought to be our response and our reaction to all things and times. If eschatology doesn't provoke us to evangelism, we've got it wrong. And may the Lord help us this week to taste both the sweetness and the bitterness of things to come and the gospel. And may that motivate us to share the good news of Jesus Christ with those around us amen let's pray father i do thank you uh, for this uh, portion of scripture and uh, i do trust that, uh, that the holy spirit has illuminated it for us that we understand it uh that, that little bit better and uh, i do pray now that you would help us to be diligent in, in meditating uh, on your word as we depart and uh, please help us to to apply it help us to think feel act and react uh, correctly when it comes uh, to end times, and uh, please help us to, to feel both the, the, the sweetness uh, and, and the bitterness. And uh, may this be motivating us uh, to, to, to share the gospel with all those around us. Help us with this, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.